Okay. I think that works better. Yeah, yeah. So a, a bit of an update um, on the uh, bio. Uh, just a couple of things. Uh, my wife, Tevis, is a school teacher and has taught for a long time. And she retired at the end of June. Yeah, so that, that's really nice. Uh, and it means that uh, one month today, the two of us are flying off to Provence. Uh, we've been there a bunch of times in the past, and we've had a wonderful, wonderful time. It's, a, it's just such a neat part of the world. Um, I would say it, it's kind of, for me, it's like going to the Okanagan, but with better wine and cheese, you know. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's, it's a lovely spot. Anyway, we've, we've been putting this off. We were going to go in 2020, but as you know, 2020, yeah. yeah. And uh, I heard of, of two adult children, and that's, that's kind of cool. Our daughter, uh, uh, she and her husband are, are now expecting in December, and we're very excited about that. Um, my friend Foster Freed, who's one of my closest friends, has noticed that the expected due date is his birthday, so think of us on December 11th. You know? It's our first one, and we're very excited about that. And, uh, and our son, Connell, um, has uh, become engaged this summer, having uh, had the same girlfriend for 12 years. Uh, we kind of figured that was in the offing. Um, and so they've both finished their schooling and are, are, are doing the rest of life together, and we are delighted about that. So those are big things in our lives, and uh, we're, we're kind of looking forward to what this year brings. Anyway, enough about me talking about me. I'd like to talk a little more about me now. Uh, my family uh, moved uh, to Canada from the United Kingdom in 1957 uh, from the still recovering from World War II Liverpool to the then bucolic Kelowna, BC. It was about as big as Parksfeld is now back then. And being that I was but four years old at the time, I believed it was wise to move with them. Uh, we, we were members of the Methodist Church in England, so it seemed natural for us to join the United Church when we came to Canada, and we became members of First United Church, Kelowna. And I have all sorts of, of really good memories of my childhood there. Now, I would dearly love to tell you that I was a particularly earnest and devout believer in those days, perhaps declaring to my bewildered parents and the enthralled theologians who surrounded me that I had some sense of being in my father's house. But no, not so much. <laughs> uh, I went to church because my, my parents uh, took me to church. And that's, for better or for worse, pretty much what most Canadian parents did in the 50s and in the 60s, at least the early 60s anyway. Some of you may remember that these were the heady days when Sunday schools were absolutely overflowing and there were sometimes more kids in Sunday school than adults in the pews. Though to be fair, even Sunday school attenders at First United Church were expected to sit in the pews because there was something called a family service. And we were obligated to attend a, a family service before going to Sunday school. Though, 
In all honesty, I don't really remember it being noticeably family-friendly by today's standards. In the hymn book of the day, remember the old blue hymn book? Under the uh, section, Hymns for the Young, they included such apparently child-friendly songs like, Art Thou Weary and Heavy Laden? <laughs> Which at age four, I don't remember being too weary and heavy laden, but there you go, maybe somewhere. And, and another gem, Before Jehovah's Awful Throne. There were many like that. Anyway, it suggests to me that there was more at play in the minds of those assembling the hymn book than merely a catchy melody or catchy lyric. And in retrospect, I'm not sure that that was such a bad thing. But that's a whole other sermon. Nonetheless, the clear memory that I carry with me at that time was that I was welcome that it was a place that I was not just tolerated, but that I mattered, that I was a part of things somehow, that I was loved. And yes, that this Jesus was somehow at the heart of this enterprise. They seemed to talk about him a lot. Now, I may not have understood much, but I understood enough and I knew that I was being included in something important. And my hope is that is the same for you here today. That as best as we're able, that we're all feeling welcomed, that uh, all have some sense uh, that they're not just tolerated, but indeed loved. And that this whole business, this work we do together is in some way revolving around the person and the work of Jesus. I remember three things with clarity from this period in my life. I remember somehow becoming a part of the junior boys choir. And these were the heady days when we had junior boys, junior girls, senior boys, senior girls choirs, uh, as well as the, all the adult choirs. And I remember also living with some nervousness, if not outright fear of the choir mistress. Miss Dorothy Jacobson. I actually have a blue hymn book with Dorothy's name on the inside. She gave it to me. Good many years later, I, I got to meet Miss Jacobson one more time. And you know what? She was lovely. <laughs> she was gentle and kind and warm. But to a now eight-year-old boy, she was a daunting figure. She led us in the singing of the old blue songs of the gospel hymn book. Remember that one too? There were tunes like We Are Marching to Zion and Precious Jewels and Jesus Bids Us Shine. And they were wonderful. I remember watching with fascination. This is the second thing I remember with clarity. A fellow in the senior choir who sat in the back row. And he had this mass of silver hair. And he was quite elderly, probably just a bit younger than I am now. <sighs> Though I now, now say with some jealousy, at least he had hair, you know. <laughs> anyway, but 
enough of me. Uh, but during the sermon, he'd close his eyes and his head would move back. Just like that. He was facing heavenward. And, and I often did wonder if he was asleep. You know? But he would always bounce back refreshed at the end of the sermon. And maybe this is just how he listened. Or maybe he was asleep. I don't know. But I remember it. He looked magnificent. The third thing I recall was my utter failure as a budding biblical scholar. In Sunday school, we were expected to memorize biblical passages, which I now believe is a really, really good thing to do. It's a brilliant way of getting the message in here and in here. It, it, it equips us really well for the inevitable opportunities and challenges of life. But again, that is another sermon. As reward for memorization at First United, we'd be given these little buttons and medals for each passage or prayer that we memorized. And then we were encouraged to wear them on Sunday mornings, usually with suits and ties. <laughs> but we would reveal to all our accomplishments. And I confess that I was always terribly jealous of the wall raven kids who managed to memorize so much that their chests were covered in metals and hardware. In fact, they had so much going on that they looked like North Korean generals, you know? <laughs> they were amazing. I, on the other hand, only achieved one thing. It was referred to as the blue button. <laughs> and the blue button was given to those who'd managed to somehow memorize the Lord's Prayer. And I still have it to this day. And I nearly wore it this morning, but I have to go dig it out of a box. And, but anyway. But you know, if you're only going to memorize one thing, I dare say that the Lord's Prayer is a pretty good thing to learn. It's been a, a regular part of most of my Sunday mornings throughout my life simply because it's a regular part of many church liturgies. Hence, even for those of us who weren't traumatized by Sunday school failures at memorization, regular attendance at services often help us to learn it. And I suspect that many of us with a little church exposure could say it fairly successfully without having to work too hard. When I used to take services at the various care facilities in Qualicum and in Parksville, I'd lead in prayer at the end of the service, and I'd always conclude with the Lord's Prayer. And even those folks who I suspected to be well and truly asleep during my scintillating homily and stirring rendition of when the roll is called up yonder, even they would perk up and join in reciting the Lord's Prayer with me. It was just hardwired in by this point. And yes, while it's good and appropriate to say the Lord's Prayer on your own, there's little doubt that it was something that was meant to have a special place in groups, in corporate worship. Here's the thing. When Jesus, in verse 2 of the 11th chapter of Luke, says, when you pray, say, and then he offers the Lord's Prayer, 
What we don't normally hear in our English translations is that the you is plural. I suppose that if we lived in the southern U.S., we might be tempted to say, when you all pray, it sounds kind of weird coming from me, but, but you all, this, the group of you, it's plural. And so it wouldn't seem unreasonable to have it used in our worship together, right? Now, my impression is that saying the Lord's Prayer here isn't exactly unusual either. I think you do this on a regular basis. Oftentimes, it's situated at the end of the prayers of the people or the prayers of thanksgiving and intercession, whichever you call them. Sometimes it might get sung on its own. And on those days when we celebrate Holy Communion, it's often prayed at the conclusion of the Eucharistic prayer, the great thanksgiving, which is a practice that goes back to the earliest days of the Christian church. Not that saying the Lord's Prayer is some denominational requirement. It's not. We have lots of congregational freedom in how we worship. But from what I've seen, it's a regular element in lots of United Church congregations' worship life. And importantly, it's a practice that serves to connect us to the body of Christ in all its different manifestations around the world. I don't believe that the United Church motto that they may all be one, was ever meant to be just about us. Oh, that they might have unity, that we might all be one, as Christ prayed the evening before Good Friday. Jesus' disciples, they came to him and they asked, uh, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. Or to put it maybe another way, you know, Jesus, we're not finding this prayer thing terribly easy. Uh, could you give us a hand? Now, prayer might come naturally to some, but for a good many of us, we need to be taught how to go about it. I remember taking a, a preaching course some years ago from someone who was regarded as one of the finer preachers of his generation. You know, he'd always be in the top 10 list somewhere. And no, the course didn't seem to take terribly well, I know. I admit that up front. But anyway, but this fellow was brilliant. He was a brilliant preacher. And he interpreted scripture so, so well. And I remember being surprised when he confessed at one point in, 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 the, uh, in the course that prayer was really quite difficult for him. He said it was something that he could never fully grasp. And, and so he was regularly challenged by prayer. And yet he was still a great preacher. So if, if prayer is a bit of a, a challenge for you, don't beat yourself up too much. There's, there's often a bit of a learning curve to it. And it seems that it was for some of the first disciples anyway. Hence, Jesus offered his friends this model for prayer. And we use it to this day. Though I'm not so sure that we always use it as effectively as a model for prayer in our own lives. And by that I mean when I'm in groups of believers and someone asks, you know, what should we be praying for? Or, or if we simply start to pray without an introduction. Someone just says, let's pray. The focus tends to be, well, at least sometimes, a bit different 
and then the prayer Jesus taught. Now, your mileage may vary on this, but I found that more often than not, what we do is we pray for the needs of people. We pray particularly for people we know. Uh, we pray for folks with illnesses and with, with genuine troubles and concerns. And, and, and don't get me wrong, these are very much prayer-worthy prayer issues. And we'll keep doing that, I know, and we should. But that's not quite how this model Jesus taught prayer unfolds. It begins by addressing God in extraordinarily intimate terms. Jesus is saying that God is like the most loving of parents, that God's not distant, but God's really close to us. And so Jesus says, pray this way, Father, holy is your name. It, it, it begins with the assumption of this close connection with the one who's, whose very name is sacred. And yet we're encouraged to address God in this, with this intimate name. It's a remarkable thing. Then there's the call for the inbreaking of God's kingdom. God, give it to us. Make your kingdom come. And that's followed by, grant us enough for today. Uh, forgive us and make us forgivers. Spare us from slipping into sin, because you know how we are, God. <laughs> and, and that's our model for prayer. This is the model that Jesus taught in Luke's gospel, and it, it suggests that it's something that we should consider emulating. Now, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is, is shorter than the rendering, in, say, in Matthew's Gospel. And for some reason, Luke omits some of the lines that we commonly use. There is no, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, there's no, deliver us from evil. Neither of them has the, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. But again, that is another sermon. So we're not up to three other sermons. So yes, I'm angling for another Sunday with you. <laughs> when Matthew finishes his recounting of Jesus' teaching of the Lord's Prayer, the story then shifts into comments about fasting and hypocrisy. But Luke remembers things a bit differently, or for some reason presents things a bit differently. In Luke, Jesus then says words to the effect of, Okay, I want you to imagine this. And I love the story that follows now. I want you to imagine it's midnight. And you and your whole family are out like lights. And your friend and neighbor rings the doorbell. And you're like, what the heck? But the neighbor keeps ringing the doorbell, ringing the doorbell, ringing the doorbell. And eventually you call out to him through the door, knock it off, don't you know it's midnight? And he calls back, hey, it's me, Jerry. My family from De Red Deer just arrived. I didn't know they were coming and I need some bread for the morning. And so you call back, Jerry, like I said, it's midnight, not now. You know, in my mind, 
all the disciples are now laughing at this line because they know that this response is utterly absurd. It was laughable because every single one of the disciples knew that she or he would have to get up despite their protestations and not out of place grumpiness. Or I might pretend not to hear the doorbell. Yes, I've lain on the floor in the living room on a, Sunday, on a Saturday morning. You've had those calls too. No one listening that day thought for a second that she would stay in bed because that would be unthinkable. It would be inhospitable. This is one of those moments when it probably helps to be a first century Judean to get the gist of what might be going on or conversely to have grown up in some of the near, middle, and far eastern cultures of today. They would get this parable really fast. See, the customs around hospitality in Jesus' day and place were very, very strong, absolutely clear. As inconvenient as it might be, he might not like it at all, but the guy in bed knew there was no question that he would have to get up and find the neighbor the bread. Because if he didn't, he and his family would be shamed the family would be dishonored. They would lose face, would lose standing in the community. And that was not going to happen. Because in that time and place, your honor was a, a big, big thing. It was, it was close to everything. He'd been asked, and so he had to respond. Then Jesus adds a bit of topspin when he says... Um, he won't get up simply because he's a friend, but he'll get up because of Jerry's persistence. The word, the, it's a Greek word that gets translated as persistence, or in some cases, boldness, is, is actually a peculiar one uh, to us. I don't think it actually has an exact translation uh, to English. In fact, it only occurs once in the New Testament, and it's the word anidiah. And it has to do with shamelessness, with impudence. It is not dissimilar from that really rich Yiddish word, chutzpah. It's cheekiness, audacity, shamelessness. And I think that's what's going on here, is that Jesus is encouraging this kind of boldness, this shamelessness, this cheekiness, this persistence in our praying. He's calling for a, a kind of immediate, in-your-face kind of praying. The kind of praying he's teaching in what we've since called the Lord's Prayer. It's that kind of prayer. It's prayer with chutzpah. Shameless. I mean, think about it. Jesus says, I want you to all pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Let's get around our heads around that rather wild beginning. Imagine you're meeting the head of state of Canada, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Betty, it's finally nice to meet you. How are the kids, Liz? By the way, if you're watching this, Your Majesty, I apologize. This was a sermon illustration. Now, no disrespect was meant. But it, it was, it's that audacious to address God as Father. 
And that's how Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is asking us to address the first person of the Trinity. Jesus is asking us to come to God the same way that he does, with the same familiarity, with the same intimacy, to say, our father or our mother. It isn't just cheeky, it's revolutionary. And just to make sure we get how audacious this is, Jesus asserts that God's very name is holy. It's sacred. It's hallowed. Yet even in that holiness, we're invited to address God with the intimacy of a child coming to a parent. Hi, Dad. Hi, Mom. It's me, Phil. Then the prayer is, your kingdom come, God. No, not Rome's kingdom, not the queen of the United Kingdom's kingdom, not of the US of A, not of the Dominion of Canada, to use our old formal name, but the kingdom of God is what we are allying ourselves with. And that's kind of a cheeky thing for a good Canadian lad to say. It's actually, in some ways, it's throwing down the gauntlet. It's a declaration to everyone else who might try to claim our devotion that our first allegiance is to God. Thy kingdom come is a big deal. And so you can see why governments find Christians dangerous, don't you? Because we can't be trusted. We can't be trusted to be compliant. We can't be trusted to be good party members. We can't be trusted to be good citizens in the sense that we'll always choose to go with the government of the day. Sure, we'll pray for you, but we may not agree with you. And we might choose that. I mean, we do value a stable society, but never at the cost of following Jesus faithfully. God, give us enough for today. And because sin has this habit of distorting us, forgive us. Keep us from temptation. And and even go so far as to turn us into forgiving people. Big step. This is bold. It's confident. it's It's an impudent prayer. And Jesus wants us to come to God that very way. Dare to pray for the kingdom. And it probably won't even look like the kingdom that you and I are imagining. After all, God's giving you the Holy Spirit. And, well, good luck corralling the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a history of taking us to surprising and completely unexpected places. Nonetheless, be brash, persist, be shameless. Not sure what the response will be, but there will be one. Dare to bring to God whatever it is that you've got. You think God's not listening? Of course God's listening, Jesus is saying. And God won't be shamed. I think that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying here, that God will not be shamed. God is listening. And God is very busy moving this project along with us or sometimes against us. Ask and you'll be answered, though the Spirit may surprise you with the answer. Seek and you'll find the Spirit may take you to that unexpected place. Knock and doors will swing wide open 
and you will be probably astonished on what's on the other side. It might not be what we were expecting. But do know this. Our God's like a good parent who delights in providing and giving their children the best. So really the question is, what's the Holy Spirit leading you to pray for or about today? What manifestation of the kingdom is bubbling up in your heart that you're needing God to bless? Whatever it is, be bold. Show some chutzpah. Be shameless. Amen. Please remain standing.